0: How do you know what's behind you? Right. How do you know if your partners and your teammates are fatigued or bored or injured? And so it just dawned on me, that is the most beautiful representation of leadership. And I learned it from a sled dog. You are
1: listening to the Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that philosophy was presented by Val Jones, former professional figure skater turned leadership coach who shares how to lead from behind. In today's episode, Jones shares the pains and gains of her figure skating career, how incremental steps lead to big advancements, and why mushers are exemplary leaders too. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the real... Val Jones. Enjoy. Okay, we are live in 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Re Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, here today to talk about leading from behind as former professional figure skater, leadership consultant, keynote speaker, and author. It's Miss Val Jones. Val, thanks for being with us today.
0: Kevin, thanks for having me on the show today.
1: Absolutely. Well, before we go into the episode, last time we spoke, you were going in for surgery. What's going on with you? I'm, I'm glad you're okay now. What's the update?
0: Well, nobody told me when I started skating at, at five or six years old that ice was hard and it would have consequences. So I've had a total of eight surgeries in nine years, and I've had three in 90 days. And I I don't know as if I would recommend that to anybody, Uh, but I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. And um, I'm now the bionic woman.
1: I love it. I love it. Now, figure skating. I used to watch it. uh, You know, let's just say I'm a fan of the Olympics. Okay, so I'm aware of what a triple Lutz is. Uh, what were some of the moves that you liked uh, to do? And what were some of the moves that you maybe uh, couldn't pull off?
0: Uh, well, I loved all of the jumps. Um, figure skating has a, uh, a component called the compulsory figures where you trace um, patterns on the ice over and over again. I found that to be quite boring. I loved skating as fast as I possibly could. And jumping as high and as far and as fast, uh, the double axle was especially fun as it is the only jump that you enter into going forwards, mm. uh, the triple let's, I'm I, it's funny that, you know, that's so good on you. Uh, that one probably is a little bit of a, uh, a, a stickler for me. That is the jump I was training when I hurt my knee and it, um, effectively ended my competition career. So mm-hmm.
1: that's that's like it for a lot of figure skaters, right? It just takes one time to, to attempt it. an incredible trick that not that many human beings have ever landed before. And yeah. there it goes, right?
0: It, it does. And it's amazing how far and fast figure skating has evolved. In 1976, Dorothy Hilma won her Olympic gold medal with a double axel which I was doing about four or five years later at the age of 10 or 11. And now these kids are doing quadruple jumps. Hmm. And I've even see, seen video of them training quints. So it's, you know, the thing that I love about the Olympics, and I bet I would wager this is why you love them too and why people love them, is it is so interesting to watch how far the human body and the human spirit can be pushed. Mm.
1: No, absolutely. Now, speaking of the the discipline it takes to become a figure skater, what was it like growing up? Uh, How many hours were you putting in a day uh, to reach your goals and what were your goals?
0: So I trained about six hours a day, six days a week. That would be three hours in the morning. And then I would go to school and then I would come back and skate three hours in the afternoon. And that was just on ice training. There was other off ice training as well. And I did that. Yeah. Every day, uh, Sundays where my day off was my rest day. And, you know, when I saw Dorothy in the 76 Olympics, I was like, wow, I want to skate for my country, too. Mm. And it takes a lot. You know, what you see on TV is thousands of hours of practice. And, you know, I I don't know, Kevin, if, if Malcolm Gladwell's theory on 10,000 hours to perfect something is right, but I can tell you, I probably fell 10,000 times before I ever landed on my feet.
1: So what does that do for you uh, as, as someone growing up with that amount of strict discipline to achieve something? Now, I'm sure a lot of us have friends that are like this. I certainly have a basketball player trying to get into the NBA right now. He was very much of the same. What does that do for someone growing up in terms of uh, the mindset you have to have to apply to your everyday career, especially after you leave the sport?
0: You know, children in sports is a very um, controversial. Sure topic, I think it's become, Um, I was fortunate, I had great parents, they didn't force me to skate, it is where I wanted to be. And I think the discipline I think when when you're in alignment with what is truly in your soul, the discipline comes easy. Mm. And there is no place on earth that I wanted to be except on the ice. And I was willing to sacrifice Quite a bit for that dream, and so while it seems hard, and and yes, none of my other friends, unless they were skating friends, were doing the same. It was a sacrifice that I was willing to make for that greater goal, um, sacrificing friends or school, high school dating, games, parties. That seemed like an easy sacrifice for my goal of competing for my country. So I think it was a combination is it was inherent with me and I had great parents. I came, I'm the youngest of seven. Uh, We were all very competitive. We were all very um, athletic. All of us kids played sports, you know, quite honestly, Kevin, I don't know how my parents did it just running from ballpark to ice rink to ballpark. I mean, I really, I, I just, I really lucked out.
1: Parents don't get appreciated enough for their involvement in uh, children's sports and and their overall lives as well. So shout out to all the the great parents out there. Mom, if you're listening, thank you. Um, Now, let's let's stay on the timeline here. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned uh, you tried the triple axel. It didn't go well. What happened at that moment? And what was the injury? What did the doctor say? What are your thoughts immediately after that injury?
0: Well, again, ice is hard, and I had been injured before. That was not anything new to me. Hmm. But um, on that particular day, on that particular jump, something felt different. The pain was much worse, and I thought, oh, it'll just be like all of my – my other injuries maybe I'll be in a in a boot or a cast and I'll we'll have to be off the ice for 6 weeks and then I'll have to do physical therapy it never dawned on me that I would have a moment where the doctor came in and was like mm, I don't think you should ever skate again and cuz that never entered my mind and so it was without um <laughs> being over dramatic it, it it was like a death mm. Everything I had dreamed of, everything I had worked, I had calculated a few years ago that I had trained up to that point over thirty six thousand hours. And so it was a death. It was a it was the death of a dream. It was I, I don't think what what people understand is when you are that heavily involved and, and you sacrifice so much, being a skater wasn't what I did, it was who I who I was and so I identified with that and, and so it brought up a whole bunch of like who am I now what am I going to do with my life now I mean I literally hadn't I had nothing outside of skating mm. to fall back on right and so that was a very very scary time for me
1: now there's another move in uh doubles figure skating called the death spiral yes and for people listening out there it's it's not that mm-hmm. anyone has ever died from it it's that the other partner is holding someone that looks like they're dead. Now you just said it was like death to you. Was there someone that was helping you back up or how did you get out of this, this mindset of, of, of uncertainty?
0: You know, the, the situation presented not favorably for me. Um, five years prior to that event, I had lost my dad to a massive heart attack. And that was very tragic for me. And and don't get me wrong, I love my mom, but my dad was my person. And so that was very difficult. Being the youngest of seven, all my brothers and sisters were grown and gone. So I didn't have that. I didn't interact with the kids at school because they just didn't get me you know, they wanted to go out and party and have fun and hang out. And I was like, Ooh, I want to go back to the rink and train. So I didn't have that collective group of friends. And then all of a sudden the only friends that I had in skating those were gone too. So I'm going to be dead honest. I struggled for a long time Mm -hmm. and I did not handle, um, and I was 18, but I was not a mature 18 year old. And, you know, I didn't handle it well, and I had some really bad coping mechanisms, and it's taken me a long time to um, find my way out on to the other side. Having said that, it is a process, and without um, being Bible thumpy, so whatever your audience believes in, if you believe in something, you have to believe that all things happen for a reason. Mm. And I just couldn't imagine at 18 how skating would be played out today. I couldn't have even imagined it. Mm.
1: Now, Val, I don't think there's any shame in kind of what you just said at all. In fact, I think that's the thing that doesn't get talked about enough. I think people see people like yourself or successful entrepreneurs or successful athletes that say they've never had a hard time in their life. What were some of the things that you were going through? What were some of your coping mechanisms? What can you say to people listening out there that can really help them?
0: Well, I would definitely say get a team around you and and, and form relationships with people who may have been in that same position before. Mm-hmm. I had nobody. And so I was forging the path um, by myself. Um, so that was very difficult. So if anybody were to, to find themselves, there are resources out there now that weren't there 35, 40 years ago um, to help you. So I would say get get a good team of people mm. a- around you. And I think the other thing I would tell people is that you have to understand that what happens to you in life even though sometimes it's really, really bad, it's an event. It's not a description.
1: Mm.
0: And it's definitely not a label. And I didn't know that at that time either. And um, so I fought uh, really hard for a really long time. And it was, you know, honestly, Kevin, I was given a chance that most people weren't. I got a chance to... Out, out of that injury and out of that loss came a chance for me to redefine who I was and who I was to become. Hmm. I, ha- I, got a, I got a clean slate and I could start over again. Hmm. Who are you going to be now? And I really drew upon a lot of the competitiveness that, that is already in me to get me on the other side. And I'm still a competitor. I'm just old and broken. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Not at all. Not at all. Uh, no, no,
0: not anymore. I'm fixed. No, exactly.
1: No, and you're incredible. It's an incredible story, Val. And I just appreciate you sharing that. Now, uh, fulfillment sometimes is an inside-out game. When you are young and you are chasing your dreams to be something, to represent your country, to wear the flag around your shoulders, and have a medal hang over you that's something that is an external validation for maybe who you wanna become. But fulfillment often comes from the inside. What were some things that you learned uh, to train your mind to believe in yourself again?
0: Well, I think it started with, you know, taking that very first step um, at the encouragement of my mom. I had just graduated from high school. Um, And let's be honest, I wasn't a bad student, um, but I did just enough. <laughs> God, I hope my mom's not listening. <sighs> I did just enough to get good enough grades to keep my parents happy so that I could skate. Right. And So I wasn't a, a scholar at all. College was never on the horizon. And my mom's like, well, why don't you just take some classes and and until you can figure out what you're going to do with your life? So I took that competitive spirit and I. Enrolled in college, and four years later, I did get my degree, and I found myself having to to, to fight for that because you know college just wasn't. It was hard. It was hard for me. I, I didn't really. I realized I didn't have any study skills, and probably until about my senior year. Um, so taking that first step, and I I feel like when people find themselves on the side of pain, disappointment, heartache, taking that very first step it is sometimes just it's it's the hardest. Mm. It is the hardest. And it, it feels like it's going to kill you. But if you can make it through that and then you just take another small step and soon you just keep taking these small steps. And after a while, you understand it adds up to miles. And I never thought in 1988 that I would be a college graduate, but I did. And so when you find yourself, um, Tony Robbins says, take action, take massive action. I say, and I love Tony. I say it doesn't have to be massive action. Take the smallest step forward. It's still a step forward.
1: Right. Right. These incremental changes, these incremental steps, (laughs) they add up, they do. And I think you Absolutely. also you also probably knew that from putting in so many hours into skating, right? Uh, so, okay. Did. So let's stick with the timeline here. We're, we okay. just graduated college. Yep. What is the next step after this this uh, uh, commencement?
0: Um, well, I met a boy and thought he was cute. And two years later, we were married, and we've been married for 26 years. Congrats. So I kind of followed the you know. I graduated, we got married, we bought a house. Um, I had two children and was in that place for a really long time until 2007, which is when I founded um, an international fitness uh, hoopla called CrossFit. You may have heard of it. Mm -hmm. And I loved CrossFit. It, It allowed me to still be... An athlete. It allowed me to still be a competitor, um, even though now I understand that, you know, I'm really only competing against the girl that I was yesterday. I'm trying to be her. Even though my face looks angry <laughs> and, and I may give you a dirty look, I'm actually not looking at you. It's just I'm trying to be better than, than her. And so I got my coaching credential and I spent – Uh, more than a decade coaching CrossFit and really found my passion for coaching people Mm. and bringing out the best in them, even when they tell me all the reasons why they can't do it, they shouldn't do it, they wouldn't ever be able to do it. I saw in them potential. And I loved that moment when they did, Kevin, they did the thing that six months ago they said that they wouldn't ever be able to do. Mm. That moment is is magical. I mean, we jump up and down, we laugh, we cry, we hug, we high five, um, and really, it's not that I did anything. They did all the hard work. Mm. All I did was provided an environment for them to search out their inner champion and their inner peak performance, whatever that was for that person. It was already in them. They just had to have an arena to bring that out, to try, to fail, because it's okay to fail. In fact, there isn't such a thing as failure. There is only feedback. And every time my butt hit the ice, it wasn't failure. It was feedback. Did I not jump high enough? Did I not rotate quick enough? Was one of my, you know, if your shoulders are off and you're rotating three times in the air, the the athlete, a figure skater will be 1% off axis. And you know what happens? (laughs) Gravity. Right. So providing that for, for these people that I worked with and allowing them to explore what is really inside of me and how can I be better? And I loved how it transferred. People would, uh, my athletes would come back and say, oh my God, you're not going to believe it. I, I got up in front of my company and did a presentation or I launched my side hustle and it, it it was filtering out into their real world. And I finally understood my coach told me years ago when I was teeny, teeny, tiny, I only succeed when you succeed. Hmm. And now as a coach, I get that. I only succeed when they succeed. And so that kind of brings you up to, yeah, recent.
1: Do you think that's a problem that many business owners struggle with? Is one, the environment, like you talked about. Creating an environment of engaged employees that embrace a culture of feedback and not failure. Do you think that's a problem that a lot of business owners struggle with? And what would maybe be some pieces of advice that you would give to ones that are trying to get their employees engaged?
0: So I think, yeah, providing a safe environment for them to do do that. And it, I often think about like, are people really scared of failing or are they scared of other people seeing them fail? Look, when I stepped out onto the ice in front of 10,000 people and I had 10,000 eyes watching me and I fell, there wasn't any escaping that. What do you do? You get up and you go again and you continue on the path. And so I think providing a culture in which, you know what, we're going to try this. And and, and outwardly saying there isn't such a thing as failure in this company, in this organization. There is only feedback. Hmm.
1: That's powerful. You know, even starting a podcast, uh, I can totally relate. What are my friends going to think of me? I can do good. Can I actually keep this up? The mind games people play with themselves
0: is
1: -hmm. is, is, is just beyond me. How how does someone get past that? How did you get past that as a figure skater, warming up uh, before you're about to take the rink? What were some things that you would think about to stay focused on the job ahead?
0: So at the risk of bragging, I competed against some of the big names that you and your and your audience have heard of. I competed against Christy Yamaguchi and, and Tanya Harding, and they are fierce competitors. Here's what I told myself. I, I think that there's a difference between being cocky, which says I can just show up. I haven't done the work, and I'm still going to win, versus confidence, which says I know I've put in the hour. I know I've done the theoretical reps. And I know that when I do my best, my best is good enough. But here's the catch. Even when you do your best, you cannot control the outcome. And that's where Tanya lost it, Kevin. She lost control. Not control over other people, but control over yourself, over your attitude over your work ethic, over the outcome. You cannot, even when you give your best, you cannot control the outcome. And I think that's where she lost it. She lost control or somebody in her group lost control. So it is, um, it is training to not give into the pain, but just adjust to the pain, knowing that the pain comes and that can be a physical pain, or it could be spiritual, mental, right? Pain comes in all different ways.
1: I totally agree, totally agree. I'm a big sports analogy person. And oftentimes when a teammate's having a bad game, you can tell something's going on at home in their personal Mm -hmm. life. Yeah. How does your off-court experiences affect your on-court performance whether you're in business, sports or even a scientist?
0: Well, I think I think sometimes compartmentalizing it is a great thing to possess. Knowing that what I do so for figure skating and, and really no matter what Sport you play, it doesn't matter what you did ten thousand times before that four and a half minutes that I skated, and it didn't really matter the ten thousand hours after. It only mattered when you're in it, and so showing up, bringing your A game, and and honestly, I feel like the difference between a gold medal and a silver medal is what is between the six inches of yours. It is that mental toughness showing up saying I have a job to do and I'm going to execute it. And I know my, again, it comes back to that confidence piece. I know I've trained, I know I've put in the reps and if I execute, I know it will be good enough. Mm. So I think compartmentalizing and trying to just focus in and show up in that moment Um, is super important, and I think that goes for sports, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a CEO, if you're a mom.
1: Exactly. (laughs)
0: It applies to everything.
1: Exactly. Uh, We're all human at the end of the day, that's for sure. Now, um, we mentioned a little bit before the show we were just talking about your leadership philosophy. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit about creating an environment uh, that embraces Mm -hmm. feedback and not failure. Uh, what is your philosophy on leading from behind and how can a business owner incorporate it into their uh, organization today
0: yes thank you um this is a, I, I love this story this is a true story my husband and i were on a dog sledding team and as we were getting ready the head musher he said he was prepping us for for the ride he said okay He said, first and foremost, as as the lead musher, you have to know all of your dogs very intimately. You have to know what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What cues, you know, verbal cues? Are they food driven? um, You know, are they prey driven? But you all the things about the animals. And then he goes on. He said there is a very strategic placing of a dog sled team. Six dogs, two, two, and two. He says, the first two are your lead dogs. They are the smartest. They can find the path easily, and they are also most uh, accepting of direction from the musher. And then he pauses. And then he says, the next two dogs, those are your swing dogs or your pace dogs. They know each other very well and they know the the route and the trail and they know when to speed ahead say for an incline and when to pull back now in a race you know if if you come out of the gate at full speed it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to maintain that speed the whole ride so knowing when to slow down and those pace dogs know each other Well enough so that they know, okay, oh, so and so is is hurting. Maybe we need to slow down. And then he goes on, and the last two dogs are your strength dogs. They pull the most weight. They're the brute dogs, they're they're usually the bigger dogs. And so he tells me, he's like, okay, so as you're coming up on to an incline. If you do not get off and hop off the sled and run with the team coming up an incline, your strength dogs will look back at you and give you a dirty look. Well, I chuckled because I thought that, I, I mean, I had no, I didn't know this man. I didn't know if he was joking or not. And so I thought, well, that's really interesting. So we go and now it's my turn on, on the sled and we approach an incline and I thought well I'm going to test this little theory now I'm not a big person I'm five feet tall and I'll only claim to be a hundred and something pounds right I mean literally the dog weighs more than me okay so I thought I'm just going to test this theory and sure enough my left dog my male dog his name was Kenai he looks back at me and Kevin you know that saying if looks could kill Right. I, I would have been dead. Right, right. He gives me Disgusting. the dirtiest look, and I was torn between just laughing so hard or or jumping off and running like I was, you know, Usain Bolt. Well, you can guess what I did. I, I, I got off and I ran. But on the way home, it dawned on me, this is a leadership moment, Because he further went and said the most most important person on the whole sled team is the musher. Mm -hmm. And the musher has to be in the back and lead from behind so that he can watch all of his animals. And he watches for fatigue, boredom, injury, when they have to go potty. Because you don't want to be hauling butt at 35 miles an hour and have things flying at you. So he has to know. And if his dogs show any signs of fatigue, boredom, or injury, he has to switch them out mm. so that he can finish the race. And I thought, that is a leader. Mm. That is being a leader. The most important person on the team is the musher. Mm. And so when I think about a CEO or or the leader of an organization, and, and we've all heard, right? We've been in the hallways of, of companies where they talk about, we have to lead from the front, lead from the front, lead from... And, and I don't think leading from the front is a bad thing if you're leading from the front as far as work ethic or, or attitude. But if you're leading from the front, how do you know what's behind you? Right. How do you know if your partners and your teammates are fatigued or bored or injured? And so it just dawned on me that is the most beautiful representation of leadership. And I learned it from a sled dog.
1: Right. Exactly. I love it. No, I love it. You, you, you explained that to us earlier and I was just like, this is probably one of the clearest examples I've heard of how to lead from behind. I think it's great. Now, how do we replicate this in the business setting? Um, you know, many leaders will come on the show and they'll talk about articulating a vision. Uh, certainly you can articulate a vision from behind. Uh, but it's more about the day-to-day and maybe how you're treating people and how you're, are are you noticing that one is getting a little bit slower? Are you noticing one's injured today? Uh, What are some things that business owners listening to this can do to replicate this mindset of leading from behind?
0: Well, I would start off with the first thing that the mesher said is knowing your team intimately. Mm. Do you know what makes them tick? Do you know what their trigger points are? Do you know what motivates and, and inspires people? Um, do you know what they're passionate about, what they're not passionate about? Not just what their skills are, but them as, as a human. And, and as, a, as I developed my own ath- athletes as a CrossFit instructor and as my coaches were developing me to compete in the Olympics, you can't just train the athletic portion of somebody. At the root of all of us, we're human. And so you can't just develop the sexy skills. And everybody wants the sexy skills. But if you're not addressing those human qualities, I think you're missing on something.
1: Mm, yep.
0: You're missing. And so getting to know your team intimately on a personal level. Um, some of my coaching cues, my verbal coaching cues did not resonate with each person. Like my athlete, Susan, if I even raised my voice to her, she would completely crumble. I couldn't yell at her because that is not what inspired her. Versus my other athlete, Ellen, who was a retired Marine, and he'd be like, don't come over here with that cheerleading crap. Right. with me val you know i had to i don't know if cursing is allowed on your show but i had to curse at him because that is what resonated with him mm. so getting to know your your employees on a very human level i worked with a company charlotte was the controller she had gone to college she had the degrees she had the certifications she was miserable i said well, what do you what do you want to do what like if time and money weren't an issue what would you be doing she's like I really love marketing. I just think it's so much fun. At the time, that organization did not have a necessarily formulated marketing division or a marketing plan. They didn't have marketing funnels or anything. And so we we negotiated with with her bosses and said, you know, what would it look like if she was able to keep up with her controller stuff for her to try out this marketing stuff? And we got them to agree. And you know what? They had like a 36% increase in sales. Their company took off. They ended up hiring another controller. And now Charlotte was the head of this marketing department. Right. And it was only because I asked, what do you want to do? Right. What inspires you? What What gets you excited to get out of bed on a Monday morning? right you just gotta so, ask
1: finding what your employees are are most interested in what they're passionate about will increase that. their engagement increase your productivity increase your yeah. bottom line it's, it's a simple concept i wonder why it's so difficult sometimes to figure that out but what's let's talk about some challenges right now yeah it might be a little bit easier to lead somebody in person right now yeah. we're speaking virtually um yep. and and i've done my fair share of podcasts but for people that are trying to lead a team right now virtually get to know their staff, get to know what they're going through. It's just a a little bit harder. It's an extra barrier that's in the way. What's a piece of advice you would give to employers that are uh, trying to improve their leadership skills virtually?
0: You know, sometimes it's okay to chuck out the agenda. And if you can make time and space, yes, you have to do it virtually, but sit around the proverbial table, the virtual table, and um, a game I often like to play is everybody has to go around and it's called Two Truths and a Lie. And so every person has to tell two things that are true about themselves and one lie and then everybody else votes on it. And you really get to know your teammates well. Now, I usually win that one because what would seem to be a lie for me is I don't know how to ride a bike. I am the only human I think that could at one point in time execute triple jumps that does not know how to ride a bike. And so, yeah, that's, you know, that's a little nugget that nobody knew about me. And so I think if you can make time and space in your week to throw out the agenda, to throw out the to do's, to, to throw out all of the plans and, and everything and just get to know each other. Like, really, if you have a, per, a, a leadership team of 10, it would take maybe 20 minutes to do that exercise.
1: Val, it's it's pretty unfortunate you can't ride a bike because that's uh, <laughs> it's one of my favorite philosophies to tell to people. It's, oh, it's just like riding the bike. But I guess just
0: like I can't riding a bike. To you. Yeah. Not I crash everyone and burn. Rides
1: bikes. Interesting. I mm-hmm. didn't know that.
0: Yeah.
1: Wow. Well, uh, Val, now what about you? You mentioned if, if time and money wasn't a thing, what would you be doing? I think that's an interesting question uh, that... A lot of people have not asked themselves yet. uh, If if time and money was an issue, what would you be doing? Why is that an important question uh, that you lead with for all of your your, uh, clients?
0: Well, because just a little while ago, you asked me and I get asked often, so often, Val, how did you train that hard for that long? And my answer was when you find something that is congruent with your heart and soul, the discipline comes easy. And so I'm going to regurgitate that. I asked that if time and money weren't an issue, what would you be doing? Because if it is congruent with their heart and with their passion, all the other stuff becomes easy. When you have when you have the why, the how becomes tolerable. And for that, you know, you said you had a friend who was an athlete, like you don't know, like muscle, not muscle fatigue, muscle failure, like it hurts. Um, You can tolerate that. How, if you know the why? And so everything kind of comes in this full circle
1: so Val, what's next for you now? Uh, for people listening to this who are hearing about you for the first time, what type of clients are you looking to work with? What is next on your agenda? Uh, and how do, are you in, incorporating the philosophy of leading from behind?
0: I would love to work with uh, more companies, more organizations, more leadership teams who are ready to um, rise to the next level of performance. Uh, what I have coming up next is my book, um, which is titled Sharpen Your Edge, which is a nod to my skating, is released November 21st. And so I'm super excited about that. Um, it took me three years to write this book. And I, I, I'm just super excited about it, Kevin, because I approach everything when I speak, when I consult, when I coach. Um, I think about the one. And the one for me is the one person who finds themselves in pain, in disappointment, in heartbreak. Now, I don't think that somebody's going to find themselves in exactly my same situation, but in humanity, pain, disappointment, heartbreak, those run through humanity. So for the one person who is there and like me, didn't know what to do or where to go or how to do it, I hope there is something in my book that will give them the courage to take that one teeny tiny step forward and move into this new life. And it may be a life they had never anticipated.
1: Uh, it's an incredible message. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be an incredible lead at a great time for this to come out as well when many people are going through uncertainty and having to look in inwards versus outwards as well. Val, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. We've talked about a lot today. Yes. The last thing I want you to do is bring this home. What is your definition of a real leader?
0: My definition of a real leader is putting other people's successes before your own. It's what I said. They only succeed when I succeed. So if you develop and pour into your team, I will guarantee you the reward will come back to you. It will come back to you.
1: Well said, Val. Spot on. Appreciate your time. I'm so happy you we were able to get this uh, going. Happy that all all the surgeries went well uh, since we last spoke. Glad you're doing well. Best of luck with the book. For Val Jones, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there. Put other people's success ahead of your own. And always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Val. Take care. Thanks. We'll be in touch. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast with Val Jones. We just hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Also, Val Jones was recorded live on Crowdcast and you didn't watch it. You could have. You could have stuck on to ask her questions of your own, got in touch with her, got her email, connected with her on LinkedIn, connected with me on LinkedIn, but you didn't do it. All you got to do is click the link in the bio, folks. That will take you to this episode where you can rewatch this interview with Val and your email will be captured by us to make sure that you are notified of upcoming episodes with more real leaders. It's a great opportunity and best of all, folks, it's free. I don't know why we're doing it. Why is it free? I don't know. Next year it's not going to be. Do it now, folks. Do it now before it's too late. <laughs> also, please leave us a review. Please leave us a review. Leave us a review. Leave us a review. Scroll to the bottom. Leave us a review. Folks, leave us a review. All right. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and always keep it real.